0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy, I'm Amy McPhee-Olivest. I first encountered feminism when I was a freshman in college. I was in an English class, and one of our main textbooks was on critical theory, which described different ways of approaching works of literature. So you can approach a work through a historical lens, looking at uh, what was going on in the world in order to understand that text. You can look at a work of literature through a biographical lens, where you see the book as a kind of a reflection of the author's personal point of view. You can analyze a work through a Marxist lens where you're looking at the role that economics and class play in that work of literature, or you can approach the work with a feminist lens, looking at women and um, at gender power dynamics in the book. So I remember encountering um, the term feminism in that context. I don't recall ever doing any feminist critique of any literature or history for the entire rest of my college education, which led me to be really uh, extremely frustrated later in life. But at least my introduction to the concept of feminism was really quite positive. It was just one legitimate way of many legitimate ways of looking at literature and looking at the world. And because I hadn't gotten any messages really positive or negative about feminism in my family growing up, And because I was learning about it as a perfectly valid criticism in the context of being at a super conservative university, I just added it to my toolbox of thought without much drama. And I wanted to share that anecdote um, and that little bit of my personal history because it's relevant to our discussion today in a couple different ways. First of all, I was shocked later in life when I discovered that feminism was such a terrible, bad, threatening word to some people. And I often heard and still hear people refer to quote unquote radical feminism or quote unquote militant feminism with a lot of fear and disdain and disgust. And I hear people lump all people who acknowledge, you know, inequities in gender, they lump them all into the same category of, of these villainous radical feminists. Um, But honestly, I had actually never read any real radical feminism until I did this podcast project. And I was curious about it. I thought, what really is radical feminism and as opposed to what other kinds of feminisms are there? So when I saw that sexual politics was one of the defining texts of radical feminism, I wanted to read it so that I would understand what people were talking about when they talked about radical feminism Secondly, I realized reading Kate Millett's Sexual Politics that I would probably not have been learning feminist literary theory in college if she had not written Sexual Politics. And then the third thing is that my reading partner today is Maxine Hanks and Maxine Hanks is a renowned feminist theologian, historian, and writer in the Mormon world and beyond, and she's a seasoned expert on feminisms and feminist approaches as a student and a teacher and a writer and Maxine, I am so incredibly honored that you're with us to share your wisdom about 60s and 70s feminism and about Kate Millett's work. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks for being here today. Oh gosh,
1: Amy, thank you. It's actually quite an honor for me to be here. I've really loved your podcast and what you're doing. I'm so impressed with it. And um I love the way that you talk about feminism, the way you, the ways that you approach it and the ways that you use feminism to break down patriarchy. So, I'm pretty excited to be here as well.
0: Oh, thanks. I'm I'm just so excited about this conversation. I have to say, too, with this particular work, I went into it. I mean, I guess, as I just described, because I didn't have, I've never had any formal women's studies education. And I went into it blind and kind of like it took me a long time to get my bearings. And so talking with you about it, planning this episode really, really helped me understand this book. And so i'm I'm just thrilled that you're here. To help us all make sense of it. And it's such an important book, so I'm really glad we're tackling it. But but before we get to the book, I do want our listeners to know um, about you, Maxine. So could you just introduce us to you, where you're from, and kind of some things that make you you? Sure. Um, you know, I was a
1: feminist from an early age. Actually, as a little kid, I knew that I, I was a feminist, although I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know the word. I just knew that I thought I was equal with the boys and I should be able to do anything the boys were doing. And, and I felt that I was kind of a whole person, both masculine and feminine. I wasn't sort of this half creature looking for my other half to fulfill me. So I had that sense actually from early childhood. But, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about my background. But basically, I'm a feminist historian, a women's historian, looking at history through feminist lenses. And also, I'm a feminist theologian. Uh, looking at theology and Christianity and Mormonism through feminist lenses. So those are the two areas of my work and focus, um, history and theology. And my day job for the most part of my life has been as an editor and and writer. Uh, Basically, in in my journey, I studied humanities and English and communications uh, through BYU, BYU BYU-Idaho and BYU-Provo. And then I I had this crisis where I needed to drop out and just focus on feminism. I was so hungry to understand feminism and to have the tools and the knowledge and the theories. So I transferred to the U of U, dropped out of BYU, transferred to the U of U in the mid 80s because that was the only place in Utah that had a women's studies program (laughs) where I could study feminist history and theory and feminist critique and language. Because at that time, I felt so trapped in male discourse, I was desperate to try to name my pain, what I was experiencing as a woman in Utah culture, particularly and Mormon culture, uh, sort of unable to even articulate the problem of sort of being double enfolded in male language and, and discourse and perspective. So I needed mentors and tools that could help me unpack why I felt imprisoned within male perspective and discourse. Um, And why I felt so unable to voice my own reality as a woman. So the program at the U of U and women's studies literally saved my sanity and taught me how and why women's bodies, lives and perspectives had been colonized within male perspective, language, social structures, and also gave me the tools and knowledge of how to break out of that. And of course, those tools were feminist theory and authorship, writing, finding your voice. So using feminist theories and approaches to find your voice within these male discourses gave you a way to deal with them, a way to find and express yourself, and a way out of them. Um, I loved learning the different feminist approaches and schools of thought and how each emerged as a response to that very problem I had been dealing with trying to find female voice to express female experience and perspective within a male-dominated system or discourse or, or um, culture. So gender studies gave me the answers that I desperately needed to find my own voice. So I did my bachelor's degree in gender studies at the U of U and I lectured there as a TA in women's studies courses there for 10 years from 1988 to 98 while compiling my first book on feminism and LDS history. And also, um, while co-teaching a course on women in Mormonism with Dr. Bella Evans, who was my mentor and guide and um, who was LDS and yet who herself had gone to college and studied theory and communications and, and had been able, you know, a whole generation ahead of me to, to deal with this issue and break out of it, even though she was my mom's age, you know. Mm-hmm. So she was an ideal mentor for me, a, a feminist mother. Um, given you know my English and comp studies background and my vocation as a writer and editor to sort of make a living, I was obsessed with language you know and how writing and authoring and editing can change our cultural discourses and I saw feminist writing and along with deconstruction as the most powerful tools for altering patriarchal discourse and structures. so I applied the theories and and methods I was learning. Um, in women's studies to address women's status in Mormon culture. And that resulted in my book, uh, which was an anthology of Mormon feminist writings, which I compiled while I was in the women's studies program and which we used as a course text for the class that Bella and I were teaching on women in Mormon culture from 1988 to 98. And I, I think maybe we'll be discussing my book later. Is that is that right, Amy?
0: Yes. Yes. Definitely. I'm so excited because we've already booked another episode on, on our reading list. We'll be reading Women's Spirit Rising Together. But as a part of that episode, um, coming up in a couple of months, I think I'll definitely want you to talk about your book and your experience publishing um at that time in your life, because that's a, a huge story. So that um yeah, we'll definitely be talking about that later on the podcast. Thanks. That's a perfect um
1: way to deal with my book and also uh theological and feminist issues in Mormon culture when we talk about women's spirit rising which was which had a huge impact on me um in in the creation of my book as well so mm. so I wait yeah i, I know it's going to be fun so back to just a little bit more about my background and what kind of brought me to women's studies and and sort of the unique background that i come from Um, I was raised in working class um, culture and family with a very Mormon background that was pretty anti-liberal, anti-feminist, anti-higher education. So I had to work to support myself and earn my own money through junior high and high school and pay for school myself and then worked full time as an editor and writer at BYU and then again at the U of U just so I could afford to go to school. I mean, I really didn't have support for an academic path or academic interest or for feminist interests. I had to carve my own path and validate that myself within a family and a culture that did not validate or support that at all. So that really formed my approach to feminism. I was really interested in issues of class and privilege because I had really struggled without the, the class privilege that a lot of, or most of my friends in, in college uh, took for granted. And it was a great source of pain for me and, and a real struggle. Um, and, and it's been a defining feature of my life as a feminist mm-hmm. uh, because I'm very, very interested in the issues of, of the working class and the issues of privilege and also women of color, how their experience intersects with that. Uh, And that, that distance or tension between sort of white privileged women, middle to upper class versus working class and women of color and just, you know, the, the gaps and the distances and the, the differences between, you know, their lives and how they approach feminism. So that's been a big issue. Um, Anyway. I I struggled to be able to go to grad school because I lacked the resources for grad school. So I basically worked as an editor for a variety of companies and clients and took classes whenever I could afford it. I studied history and religious studies. And finally, I applied for a grad fellowship in theology at Harvard, which was a godsend and paid for a whole year at HDS, which was sheer bliss for me. I felt like I'd landed in heaven And I was invited by professors there to stay and do the MTS and THD, but I couldn't fathom how I could pay for it or somehow (laughs) manage it logistically and financially. So I came back to Utah and also had to take care of my mom um, out of state in Idaho. So I was commuting between Idaho and Utah to take care of my mom while trying to take grad classes and continuing to work as an editor. But I managed to find uh, a program in chaplaincy through a friend of mine, uh, Mark Allison, who taught chaplaincy. So I was able to do that and get chaplain training, which was um, a crucial part of my religious studies and theology journey and and enabled me to become a volunteer chaplain. So I was able to serve as a chaplain for a decade. Um, And during that time, I was independently researching feminist theology in Christianity. So I found that over the course of my life, a lot of my studies were independent due to necessity and, you know, a lack of resources. And this is a theme that you find with so many of the founding mothers of feminism in the second wave in the sixties and seventies, they were having to figure it out while not having support or funds. And they were having to invent a language before it existed. And they were having to create new programs and approaches when there were no programs in academia supporting those approaches. So we were sort of constructing our own wings while learning to fly. And, um, and so I, I was definitely typical of, of those women in, in those ways. Um, although a lot of the leading feminists in the sixties and seventies were women of privilege. And so that is a big issue because a lot of the leaders were white women of privilege. And so leadership in, in feminism, the radical second wave of the 60s and 70s do, did tend to be uh, white female privilege centric. But at the same time, um, they were pioneers in having to figure out how to create this movement. So they struggled in many ways that, that women who lacked their class and privilege also struggled and that became a common kind of bond it helped to bridge that gap between privilege and lack of privilege. Um, anyway, um, long story short, I found an online program that enabled me that was very affordable, that enabled me to do my master's in history, which was thrilling because I had been doing historical research on Mormon history since the 1970s and, and history and theology are my two loves. And so I really wanted to complete degrees in both. Um, so and and I really needed those historical tools and methods as well to really sharpen my work on women's history. Um and so a uh, long story short the two takeaways I think from my bio are that I really needed and valued having different scholarly lenses from different fields, particularly history and gender studies and religious studies. I felt like I needed all three lenses to really do the work I wanted to do in Mormon history and, and feminist theology. Um, because I, I think you really need to have a deep understanding of history as well as women's studies and feminist theory and theology and ministry in order to unpack the situation of women in religion, especially in Mormon culture. So I use all three lenses in my work. The other takeaway is that, as I mentioned before, before, um, my struggles and self-doubts and lack of privilege and reliance on self-mentoring and pioneering is just so typical of the feminists who were the leading voices in the 60s and 70s, like Kate, um, which she describes in her introduction, her struggles. Um, and we all had to sort of pioneer women's studies and feminism and, and feminist discourse and critique before pro- feminist programs were established while they were just forming. I mean, I had to wait until I could find a program in Utah in order to study it. Um, other than just my own independent reading, I had to wait until 1988 to find a program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and that was a long wait. I was interested in the late 70s, and I had to wait a decade to find a program. So all of us feminists in the 70s and 80s were learning to speak a new language while inventing it <laughs> and mm-hmm. while working our way out of being constructed by male discourse. It was like birthing yourself. Mm-hmm. Kate uh, Millett says, we were beginning to invent women's studies. We were reinterpreting knowledge. And um, that's exactly how it was. Um,
0: I just, I've been nodding the whole time you're talking. It just just keeps reminding me of Gerda Lerner talking about every generation having to reinvent the wheel um, and just waiting because there aren't the the resources and the opportunities. So women struggle with their pain and then have to try to figure it out. And, and I just thought, why didn't I know you sooner in my life? You, I could have learned <laughs> so much from you at... You know, in my 20s, in my 30s, I could have just so benefited from knowing someone like you and have you say, oh, no, I've already done all of this. Let me show you the shortcut. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, well, you know,
1: you, you've you uh, targeted a really crucial point that I bring up in the introduction in my book, Women in Authority. I cite Gerda Lerner, that very quote, mm-hmm. and I talk about how that describes the situation of Mormon women having to mm-hmm. reinvent the wheel every generation due to a lack of networking and a lack of continuous feminist discourse. Mm-hmm. And then my solution with the book and with my own work was to do that networking that you lament that you didn't have
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it was so sorely needed. The networking between women and feminists and their um, collaboration on discourse was vital to remedy that repeated generational reinventing the wheel.
0: Well, thanks Maxine for um, that amazing bio and that introduction to you and your work. And I want to ask you one more question that I ask reading partners, which is what interested you in doing an episode of breaking down patriarchy or what does breaking down patriarchy kind of mean to you? Gosh, I would
1: say two things. I love this survey of feminism that you've been doing, and I've been so impressed with it, Amy. Um, Thanks. It's fantastic. When I discovered it, I thought, oh my gosh, this woman who's just, again, like the rest of us, figuring it out yourself, coming to it new, and just trying to to do it yourself, um, you managed to compile the very reading list that we were given in my Women's Studies program back in the 80s at the U of U. And so the books that you've been reading and that you plan to read, that, that was our reading list in Gender Studies. And so it was a real return to the past. It made me homesick for the mm. 80s and, and being this student in gender studies at the U to go through your podcast and look at, at the books you were treating. it it's um, You targeted the um, ideal books, the pivotal books that really need to be read and discussed to understand patriarchy and feminism and how feminism responds to patriarchy. So I was just extremely impressed by your mm. project and and wanted to jump in and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> I was there. I did that in the 80s. Let yes. me help you finally yes. do that, do that networking. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. other thing, well, it's, so it's really, really heartening for me to see young feminist organizations and groups in Mormon culture and young feminists like yourself, um, engaging those texts and, and using them and, and learning what we learned then. And, um, you know, really coming up to speed, because then we're less alone, then we have a common discourse. And and all of a sudden, we can start to really do something (laughs) together. Mm -hmm. But also, the other reason I wanted to jump in and join you for a couple of episodes is that, like I said, I personally lived through the 60s and 70s, -hmm. when those feminists were writing those books, and that shaped my identity. And so, um, you know, they were addressing and the books that you're discussing are dealing with the times that I lived through and that shaped me as a kid in grade school and junior high and high school.
0: That's fantastic, Maxine. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, like we said before, I I think your experience will help us and be so useful as we approach Kate Millett's work because this book can be kind of intimidating, I feel like. So, um, so let's dig in and first let's introduce Kate Millett as an author um, and then we'll talk about her book a little bit. So I'll just acquaint read or I'll acquaint listeners with Kate Millett. She was born Catherine Murray Millett on September 14th, 1934, in St. Paul, Minnesota. According to her, she was afraid of her father. He was an engineer, and he beat her when she was a kid. He was an alcoholic, and he abandoned the family when she was 14, which consigned them to what she described as a life of genteel poverty. The Millets were Irish Catholic, and Kate attended parochial schools in St. Paul throughout her childhood. Kate Millett earned a bachelor's degree with honors in 1956 from the University of Minnesota, and two years later, she was awarded a master's degree with first-class honors from the University of Oxford. So in England, that's a huge jump for her, a huge, I'm sure, broadening of her horizons when she uh, did that master's degree. After teaching English briefly at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro after her master's degree, she moved to New York City to pursue a career as an artist. And to support herself, she taught kindergarten in Harlem in New York City. In 1961, another big move, she moved to Tokyo, where she taught English at Waseda University and also studied sculpting. She ended up marrying a Japanese sculptor named Fumio Yoshimura in 1965, and the couple moved to New York City again, where Millett studied English and philosophy at Barnard College. The couple later divorced in 1985, but while she was there in New York City, she pursued a doctorate at Columbia University, and in 1970, she was awarded a PhD with distinction from Columbia, and her thesis, her doctoral thesis, was a work combining literary analysis with sociology and anthropology, and that thesis was published as Sexual Politics, and that's the book that we're reading this week.
1: Yes, and I want to just add really quickly, mm-hmm. um along with you know her difficult background and having to find her own path coming from an abusive family, I want to mention her personal struggles within academia, mm-hmm. which which is a huge theme for these leading feminists in in the second wave, you know, trying to find their place as a feminist within a male-dominated academic uh, environment. Um, that was a huge struggle for women like Kate and all of the others who were working in academia. And she exerted to fit in and find approval of male mentors and to really succeed. So she towed the line yet she had to drop out of her PhD Mm -hmm. program due to, as she described it, living a double life as an artist and an academic. So the Bohemian artist life and the serious scholar and also due to losing her university job, which was enabling her to be there. You know, without that job, she couldn't pay for a program. You know, she couldn't stay in school. And that's the reality, you know, of so many women who don't come from privilege, wh- whose families will pay for their education. And she was fired because of her support and her participation of a student the student protests that were happening on campus um, Mm. and the activism. So she opens her book by saying that uh, this book happened because I got fired, Mm. which is such a classic scenario for these groundbreaking feminists, you know, who um, couldn't fit in, didn't fit in. And that shaped them in a way that forced them to do this feminist thing that they did, you know? So the the sexism was was and and the lack of of belonging or or um, support was the mother of necessity for so many feminist works in this in the 60s and 70s. She needed money and couldn't continue teaching. So because she lost her job. So she decided, okay, I'll publish my thesis. (laughs) Mm. And that worked. She was desperate and pragmatic due to the realities of gender and economics. And she published her book and it birthed radical feminist discourse.
0: Amazing. Thanks for adding that. So as you said, the, the book that she, so her, her PhD dissertation was published. I'm sure she didn't expect it to be the success it was, but it was like literally an overnight success and transferred Millett into a public figure actually right away. Um, and and having that fame was sometimes hard on her. It was hard for her mental health um, and, and kind of being in the spotlight. One example of that is that while she was speaking about sexual liberation at Columbia University, there's a woman in the audience that just like unprompted piped up and and just confronted her and said, Why why don't you say you're a lesbian here openly? You said you were a lesbian in the past. And so Millet was really put on the spot, but she hesitantly responded, Yes, I am a lesbian. And then a couple of weeks later, Time magazine published an article called uh, Women's Lib, a Second Look. And that article reported that Millet had admitted she was bisexual, which was true. And Time then reported that it would that that admission that she wasn't straight basically would likely discredit her as a spokesperson for the feminist movement because it and and this is a quote it quote reinforced the views of those skeptics who routinely dismiss all liberationists as lesbians end quote and that was true. Listeners will remember that. Um, Betty Friedan famously referred to f- to lesbian feminists as the lavender menace. And um, there was a lot of pressure on queer women to stay in the closet at the time because it would, they felt it would discredit the movement within the mainstream establishment. And I just feel for her being called out like that publicly and then having mm. time, write an article on her personal life. I just, I think that would have been so, so hard. Oh, Yeah. Oh, I think
1: incredibly um, difficult with all of the other stresses and tensions she was trying to navigate. And this really brings up an important point because second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s was largely led by, as I said, white privileged academic women, many of whom were straight or at least the straight women were sort of put out front. <laughs> mm. And lesbians often found themselves at the margins of the movement or behind the scenes supporting the straight feminists at the forefront because the straight feminists like Gloria Steinem gave feminism legitimacy to the straight audiences they were trying to reach. Mm-hmm. Even though it was it was lesbian experience and perspective in many ways helped establish the radical female perspective or woman-centric views that birthed radical feminism and countered the male-centric perspectives and discourses. I mean, lesbian experience, the lesbian lens really really helped define that and, and give straight women the confidence and the courage to, to really own that and articulate that. So lesbian women were in, in a way central to the formation of, of the radical feminism and its female-centric view as a response to male-centrism, but yet they were marginal in, in, the, um, in the movement. Uh, one writer who really stood out and really influenced me in the 80s was lesbian writer Adrienne Rich who was a major voice, you know, in second wave feminism and who deconstructed straight privilege as well as male privilege by exposing heterosexuality as compulsory, just naming it. It it just, it blew my mind Um, because having heterosexuality be compulsory upon women and on people, it it automatically was hostile to gay lives, and Adrian Rich really um, powerfully communicated that I think across perspectives in a way that that um, really opened my mind to that as a straight woman, you know. But but I, I understood as a Mormon woman, compulsory marriage mm. and parenthood, which I was really resisting because um, I wanted to try to. F- find myself, my own path first. And so when I read Adrian Rich's uh, work, I realized that's it. It's compulsory. It's Mm. these, these things. So for lesbian women, it was heterosexuality that was compulsory that was being forced on them. For me as a straight Mormon woman, it was marriage and children that I was experiencing as compulsory. So her work really spoke to me, even though I was straight and I was impressed with the way that, that this you know, lesbian perspective was able to cross and and those boundaries and bridge that understanding. Um, Also, along with lesbian women, working class women, who, as I said, lacked the support and access to the colleges where second wave feminism was really forming in the 60s and and taking off, um, working class women had a hard time adding their voice to the movement as well. Which, Mm -hmm. for example, Gloria Anzaldúa, who edited this bridge called my back Mm -hmm. and who I met personally and got to know, she shared Mm -hmm. her struggle with me personally. And she and I commiserated about being working class women who, who had, who lacked the privilege that, that a lot of white middle-class women had and, and how we were treated sometimes in the movement Mm -hmm. by, by those privileged women who were married, had husbands providing for them or had families who paid their schooling and those of us who didn't have those things were really struggling and and there was a gap a, a very real gap there as well and then of course women of color women of color there's a huge gap in in second wave feminism between women of color and white women because white women's focus on on the right to be uh in the workplace and be equal with men wasn't really the focus for women of color who had been working in the workplace all along to survive and support their families. So uh, their needs were different as well. And their, their views were also marginal. And also it was, it was a vital shift in discourse and consciousness simply to put women first as central, Mm. you know, their views, their perspectives, their voices as primary rather than marginal. And mm-hmm. and and not as the other to male experience to be written upon by male perspective. So that mm-hmm. was the other thing that helped to cross those gulfs and those boundaries was just the common need to put female experience, whatever, you know, whatever context it came from, no matter how different those female experiences were, just putting female experience first
0: mm-hmm. and
1: as primary and central, not marginal was, mm-hmm. um, was really crucial and, and really bonding across the cultural divides. Mm.
0: Well, that'll be um, really appreciated by listeners who have been with us for the beginning and listened to all of these episodes and maybe even read some of the books along the way um, and really understanding the context that Beauvoir, you know, we, we've talked about it over and over again, that, that concept of that, her her noticing and articulating that the man is the one and the woman is the other that she's the second sex mm-hmm. and so yeah mm-hmm. this is a it, it's really a revolutionary moment it really was uh you know a revolution this women's lib movement in the 70s i feel like they're doing things taking those ideas and and um developing them in ways that had never been done before mm-hmm. so so millet did become a spokesperson right of for the, you know, the kind of radical feminism, um, following the success of her book, Sexual Politics, she also struggled a bit with kind of the perception of her as arrogant and elitist. And she talked about that in a book in 1974 called Flying. But I just wanted to bring that up because um, listeners will remember our episode on Gloria Steinem's speech, Living the Revolution, where Steinem says that a lot of feminist writing is just too academic and inaccessible. And it makes it kind of just useless to real people because that's not, you know, the way real people talk. And it's not something that's that's even understandable to people who haven't been to graduate school. And especially if they haven't been to graduate school in women's studies, it's just like they don't they don't even know First of all, sometimes that those books exist, so it can't help anybody. <laughs> and then also, <laughs> sometimes when they find, you know, when they try to read it, it's like I, I don't even understand this academic language. Um, and so, I mean, I just wanted to bring that up that, that she was criticized of that right from the very beginning. And um, and some readers might find it just quite dense and too highbrow. Um, in the in the, there's a New Yorker article written by Rebecca Mead who wrote the foreword to the latest edition of Sexual Politics. It's a fantastic article, um, and Mead notes that you know one of the issues was that Millet takes on these authors when she's doing this feminist critique. She takes on authors that were like elite male novelists, kind of for the intelligentsia, kind of like for the for the really. Um, Highly educated, and she brings up the fact that in our time, no one even knows who elite intellectual male novelists are, right? I mean, when we talk about feminism, we expect that feminist critique to address, like, politicians and pop culture, and um, and so there's been a shift since Millet, right? That kind of feminism is now in the mainstream. But she was, they were having these conversations in the the '70s about authors sometimes that people didn't really know and using words that people didn't really know. Um, What's your thought on that, Maxine? Oh, exactly.
1: This is such an important point. This is another major tension that emerges in second wave feminism and in the seventies and, and um, that the seventies feminism really, really responded to Um, this, this tension between the academic feminists mm-hmm. who were who had Ivy League educations and and were speaking, you know, academic and scholarly discourse versus, you know, the woman in the street, the woman at home, the woman in the workplace, the popular feminist mm-hmm. and 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 their language. And and somehow there needed to be a way to bridge between academic interests, academic discourse, um, and popular needs and popular discourse. Because feminism needed to respond to both realms, it was okay. desperately needed in both realms. You know, Gloria Steinem became, a, interestingly, the major bridge there. Mm-hmm. She she's from a, a privileged background and and she had a a privileged education, but she really identified with the woman in the street, and she really identified with s- speaking in a in a way and in, in a. Common, popular language that everyone could understand it, and really speaking to the issues that were affecting everyday women. And so, she and Robin Morgan and the other women who created Ms. Magazine bridged that gulf, that tension with Ms. Magazine, mm-hmm. and it's su- it succeeded brilliantly because you know Gloria was basically translating, um, you know, feminist theory and and really complex, sophisticated ideas and methods into everyday language and into everyday women's lives. And so that was, that was really crucial. Another um, part of this, this tension or this distance is, and, and the, you know, the difference between sort of the feminists who were responding to male scholars and academics, the elite versus feminists who were really focusing on, on everyday work and life issues was that in the '60s, um, the medium for deep cultural discussion was not the internet. We didn't have the internet, and and it wasn't really treated very much on news programs, which focused on on politics and, and current events. The the medium for deep discussion of, about culture and cultural change was was the academy, you know, mm-hmm. and also publications. So books and articles were where these discussions were happening in the 60s. And um, and again, like I said, that shifted with the work of Ms. Magazine and, and Gloria Steinem. But that was before mass media was engaging these topics and long before cable TV and internet. So mm-hmm. Kate and women like her had to focus on uh, male scholars and academics and male elite male writers um, because that's where they were working themselves, but also that was where the conversations were really happening in the 60s.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I I want to throw in also another name of um someone who bridges the gap, because she's coming up on two different episodes in the future. And that's Bell Hooks. She's one who yeah. writes in the vernacular of the common woman. But she has, I mean, you know, she's Stanford educated, and she's Like, brilliant and understands it. And then she says, This needs to be packaged so that, you know, so that my mom can benefit from it, so that my sisters can benefit from it. Right. So so important. Okay. One last thing about Kate Millett um, is that she was kind of known to be one of the first writers to describe the modern concept of patriarchy as the society-wide subjugation of women. And in, and she's really in the tradition of Beauvoir in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it hadn't been done very many times, right? I mean, she she really was kind of like the heir of Beauvoir. She does a similar project, but... Um, Her biographer, Gail Graham Yates, said that, quote, Millett articulated a theory of patriarchy and conceptualized the gender and sexual oppression of women in terms that demanded a sex role revolution with radical changes of personal and family lifestyles, end quote. And um, just to compare, I mean, Betty Friedan's focus was really more to work within the existing system right just to kind of improve leadership opportunities improve economic independence for women like women go back to school get a liberal arts degree like go get a job you know um achieve your own individual potential but kind of within the existing structure and millet as again and this is maybe and you and you can help us understand this more that that's maybe the a, a difference that distinguishes someone as a radical feminist where she's going, like, oh no, no, this is not like a cosmetic remodel. We're taking the house down. Like we're, we're gonna <laughs> build something new, right? So if you could um, kind of give us some more, some larger context about the 1960s and 70s and really understanding the importance of of Kate Millett's contribution with this book.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, that tension that you identify um between Millet and ferdan is is very present in the difference between both first wave feminism and second wave feminism so um, first wave feminism in you know the 19th century and second wave feminism in the 20th century um, that difference between trying to find your place within existing systems versus redoing the existing systems. That's that's a big shift between first and second wave feminism, but it's also a big shift between um, some of the 60s feminism of the second wave and the 70s feminism of the second wave. Second wave feminism begins in about 1960 and goes to about 1990. And so it encompasses some major shifts. So yeah, let me, let me talk just a little bit about both of those things, the second wave feminism as opposed to first wave and then the, the, ad, the different tensions and aspects within second wave feminism. Um, you know, Second wave feminism, as I said, was born in 1960 because there was a real need for a whole new wave of feminism, which had kind of ebbed after the 1920s although not totally. I mean, feminism surges in the 1920s with the women's vote and the roaring 20s. And then it kind of ebbs in the 30s with the depression. Then it comes back huge in the 40s with World War II, when women have opportunities, and in fact, are forced by necessity, the mother of invention, to go into the workplace in larger numbers than ever before and do traditionally male jobs. I mean, that was a huge boost to feminism. But then it retracted retrenched hugely in the Mm fifties with when the war was over and the nuclear father was promoted and women were supposed to go back home and, and be homemakers. So the sixties are again, this whole new surge. It was time. If you're going to alternate every decade, you know, between feminism and retrenchment. Mm -hmm. the sixties was this huge radical burst, this shattering. And, and there was just a real need for a whole new wave. And so the sixties gave birth to that new wave. of feminism, the second wave. Um, and, you know, that's that's partly because of the, the radicalism and liberalism that was happening generally in academia and in society, um, promoted by a lot of liberal men um, who were leftists. And I'll get into that in a minute. But first wave feminism really kind of gave birth to liberal and cultural feminisms which were both focused on advancing women's concerns and finding equal status within existing systems so liberal and cultural feminism of the first wave were trying to gain inclusion in um in society and in male systems um Liberal feminism was more focused on the equality of men and women, sort of reducing, or diminishing the differences and giving them the same rights. Whereas cultural feminism was focused a bit more on the unique um, empowerment and vision that women had to offer and bring to the world in terms of cultural form and temperance and, and things like that. Um, so, but But it was addressing male privilege. Both liberal and cultural feminisms of the first wave were we're tackling male privilege and male only spheres and also political equality and, and trying to give men and women equal value. Um, so second wave feminism took it way further. It was time for a movement that would look at those existing systems and look at the roots of those existing systems and undo, unpack, reconstruct, dismantle those roots of the existing systems of patriarchy, the religions, the structures, the politics, the sexual relations, the family. Um, So second wave feminism tended to focus on finding the roots of of patriarchal structures and then dismantling them. And that's what the word radical um, comes from is the root. A radical addresses the root of the problem. So the the second wave gave birth to radical feminism. and that really focused on the roots of sexism that were embedded in the systems. And, and so it had to be identified and it had to be named. You had to name it, call it out, you know, and then tear it apart, <laughs> dismantle it. Mm-hmm. So the, the radical feminism, which, which came to occupy the second wave, just like liberal feminism, cultural feminism had occupied and, occupied and defined the first wave of feminism in America. Radical feminism really defined the second wave. And um, it was focused on seeing sexism as systemic and ingrained and reinforced by society and its structures. And there was, there was this need to not only dismantle that, but to find a new freedom outside of it with new language and new constructions, new structures, um, and especially to end the social limits placed on the female body. Mm-hmm. And that meant that they were going to tackle sex, marriage, family, male and female relations, and also sexual distinctions between men and women and their equality. Um, so in the 1960s, you have you have three decades in the second wave. You have the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. And each one of those decades brought a really unique focus and phase of work that, that differed. In the 60s, um, which gave birth to it, That was a time of radicalization, breaking out of the 50s, like I said, and exerting to formulate or launch um, radical feminism. But the 60s radical feminism was limited in scope and it was emerging on campuses. And like I said, among the educated. So it was really largely an academic movement emerging out of academia. It was really trying to conceive and formulate ideas and approaches uh, before they could really be embodied or utilized. In the 1970s, radical feminism took a turn to really um, embody, to really sort of achieve those those theories that had been articulated in the sixties and really become them embody them and actually do them and really start actively undoing the systems of sexism. So they had the tools now they had the ideas and now they just wanted to do it. And so it also became a pivotal time for the wider realization of radical feminism beyond the Academy, beyond the privileged, you know, beyond the elite, the seventies brought that wider, um, realization of 60s feminism in the broader society through things like Ms. Um, and it was also the middle decade of the second wave. And so it had, it had precedent and momentum from the 60s decade that really helped it to, to launch. And it had clear goals and tools. And it was much more available in the media. Um, so the average person and the average woman was able to access it and absorb it um i I'll never forget again, as a, a you know how my life intersected with this as a child, I was a child of the sixties, so I was in grade school and junior high in the sixties, and I was profoundly affected and shaped by the turmoil of liberalism and activism and civil rights, and of course the assassinations of John F Kennedy and Martin Luther King, those imprinted hugely on my psyche and formed me as. As someone who believed in social justice and and who recognized that that protest and um, uh, radicalism was necessary, um, and and so you know I, I sort of absorbed it as a kid um, through the news media. But what I was absorbing was was more the political male led protests and politics and events it wasn't until 1970 that i began to see and absorb the feminist side of the you know second wave and and the 60s liberalism um, in the, in the 60s, the pill gave women access to birth control, and the National Organization for Women was born in 1966, and you had very early publications like Gloria Steinem talking about what it was like to be a Playboy bunny, you know, and Sylvia Plath writing The Bell Jar in 63, and, and of course, Friedan's Feminist Mystique in 63, um, and... So in the sixties, you you have these for like I said formulations of the problem and and what to do about it. And the seventies brings it to the media. So that nineteen seventy was the year that I entered high school, ninth grade, mm-hmm. and that was the year I began to see these women in the media. So the media shifted from just focused more on male politics and 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 civil rights to feminist uh, activism and protests. And I began seeing on TV, Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King. And I'll never Mm. forget how feeling in high school in the early seventies and 72 and 73, that I sort of had two choices that the media was offering me because in terms of female role models, because the person who we saw everywhere in the media in the sixties, late sixties and early seventies was Twiggy the Mm. anorexic model who was supposed to be the ideal of who we were supposed to be. And, and that affected millions of girls, including me making me Mm. anorexic and wanting to do modeling. So I went through Mm. this whole anorexic phase because that was the role model offered until I could, you know, in the late sixties and just going into 70 until I could see Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King who offered me this other option. And those were my options that I saw in the media as a teenager and so I shifted, and I identified with with Gloria's um, intelligence and articulation, and being a writer. And then I identified with Billie Jean King's um, athleticism and and her
0: mm. her liberal
1: feminism, her willing to challenge her willingness to challenge the the male dominated you know athletics field, and and um, you know, show her equality there. So that shift in 1970 was crucial between the more academic to the popular uh, feminism and the elite to the everyday common feminism. And so you have both feminisms operating in the seventies, the, the um, academic critiques, feminist critiques of, of male um, academics and writers. And then you've got the popular feminists with Ms. Magazine and activism um, critiquing culture, the workplace and how women are treated in in everyday culture and life. Um, So to get back to sort of Kate Millett and the context for her work, because Kate is among those academic feminists who are tackling the intellectual academic side of the 60s and 70s and um, applying their feminism to articles and books and texts and, and male discourse. Um, in in a more uh, scholarly or academic or published uh, venue. And so what happens is that the the feminists like Kate Millett and others who are working in that realm suddenly discover that this new radical liberalism um, has kind of left them out or marginalized them, that it's dominated by men and by male centric views and by male sexism and misogyny, which is still the norm. Mm -hmm. So they're finding that this, this revolution and, and this project that they, they helped to create and they're trying to participate in is dominated by male perspective and that sexism and misogyny are still the norm, even in, you know, the new leftist movement and the liberal radicalism of the sixties and seventies. So they discover that they've got to address that. Um, they they're unable to thrive in the '60s world that they'd helped create, and because there's a real lack of progressive gender politics within their own social intellectual movement and time, the the women were finding that they were left off the male agenda in the mm-hmm. in the new left, and and there were just a few feminists who were on the radical edge of these liberal you know academic movements, and these these women. We um, were unwilling to be the ladies, they called it the ladies auxiliaries of the mm-hmm. new left. Um, mm. They just were not willing to be, you know, marginalized in that way and given secondary status in this new revolution uh, of the 60s and 70s liberalism. And so the radical feminists of the, of the 60s and 70s began critiquing and reinterpreting male centric uh, views and discourses. And Kate mentions that, you know, in order to really accomplish the emancipation of women, it's a very long, difficult winding down of all oppressive systems. Mm. And so it turned out to be a bigger task that they discovered than they had realized. So here these women are, you know, trying to help move this movement. And they're discovering that the men they're working with are not their allies. They're kind of their enemies.
0: So Mm -hmm. they have
1: to both try to move the movement forward and address the the sexism posed against them in their own movement. And so these radical feminists are arising to critique in many ways, not just the the sexism in American society at large, but the sexism of the, the liberal new left men. And so what is that new left? It was... Basically, that movement of the '60s and '70s, where men were ad- addressing um, and and trying to revise liber- notions of liberalism and humanism and democracy and Marxism, socialism, psychology, activism, cultural studies, social justice, free speech, um, and using protest to tackle. The, the roots and the structures of class and politics and race and civil rights and authority, the establishment, economics, the environment, sex, love, identity, mm. free love, black power, you know, every every revolutionary uh, discourse or movement that was arising in the 60s was sort of trying to come together and, and work together in some way uh, to somehow um, – address and dismantle the white privileged heterosexual um, perspectives that had shaped them all and and was dominating all of these things. And so you also see, of course, Black Power Movement, the American Indian Movement, the anti-war movement, anarchist and countercultural and hippie movements. All of these things are happening in the 60s and 70s. And so this is the new left. The new Mm -hmm. left is this attempt to uh, revise the the old structures and discourses and also synthesize these different movements that are trying to address them. And um, and, and it, it was very dominated by male, white male heterosexual voices who stood out and were the key voices shaping a lot of this new left movement. So the women, like Kate Millett, were... Um, responding to those male voices. And this is what you see with her book, Sexual Politics. Um, her, and this this context of the new left and the context of second wave feminism and the, the phases of it in the 60s and 70s and 80s really give important context to understand why Kate Millett did what she did, why she approached it the way she did, um, mm-hmm. and why her book, which occurred in 1970, it's published right at this point, this of shift from the 60s and 70s feminism, and and why it was it took off and was such an important text because it embodied that shift. Her work, her voice, her book embodied the shift from the male centric to the female centric. Commenting on the male centric views in the movement, and her book embodied the shift from. The, the private academic elite to the more popular, the widespread, and the mainstream. So, Kate's book launches the 70s phase of radical feminism as doable, real, accessible, and far wider than just in the academy. And what she says, she's aware of this, you know, what she says in her book is um, that as her book took shape, so did the events. By the time sexual politics was published, our actions and demonstrations, meetings and issues were mobilizing women. By the summer of 1970, the moment this text was released, there was a great wave of feminist building. So she's aware of it and she, her work embodies it. And so that's, that's part of why it's, it's really the pivotal text. And it really was a pivotal shift. Especially from 1970 to 1975, again, I'm in high school and living through this time. And there's a crucial shift that happens there where women become feminist um, in a way that was not a given before. Up until, even into the 60s, up until about 1970, the primary question facing us all was, who am I going to marry?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Any notion, it was marriage and family first and discovery of self career education, second or last, if at all. Um, And, and so between 1970 and 74, right when I was in high school, that was what was shifting. And that's what women like Kate were enabling to shift. Because all of a sudden, we had to, we were faced with these options that we hadn't really had before. Do I want to go to school? Do I want to find my own identity? Do I want to have a career or do I want to get married? And we were we were really torn between those two options because the precedent of putting self and education and career first was not really set. The time that I experienced when that was really set was between 1970 and 74 75. And so after 75 it's a given. And and it's much more uh, there's a precedent you know, so that women can can ease more easily choose and know that they really do have those two options. Hmm. Okay, I can go to college and 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 have a career and figure out who I am first before I get married. And so it's really this crucial shift. I've talked to so many friends who are the same age that I am, feminist friends of mine. We all experienced that that we had to navigate that and make that be okay and and sort of realized that we had the right to make that decision. And then it became a given for the next, you know, the, the next group in the high school between 75 and, and 80. Um,
0: well, maybe, because I'm thinking, <laughs> as you're talking about this, I'm just like, it, I, I'm like, I think I, did I live in a bomb shelter? It's like I was Kimmy Schmidt, like that I emerged <laughs> from underground, like, wait, there was a second wave of feminism because you're saying like everything changed for you in the seventies. I feel like wow, that did Yeah, I I I was living in a in a bunker because I was in college in the nineties, but everything you're describing is like from being the sixties. That's what I that's what I encountered. And it's just because the second wave of feminism didn't reach my community. It didn't mm-hmm. so I, I mean it's so amazing that you discovered it when you did. And like most of the country did move on, you know, and they knew about Kate Millett and they knew about free Dan and they knew about this stuff. They discovered <laughs> right. that in the seventies, but yeah, I was, I was Kimmy Schmidt. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't so know you women living, could do that.
1: You were living in Utah.
0: I know I grew up in Colorado, but I was just oh, in a little Mormon okay. bubble.
1: Yeah, Okay. I didn't, okay. So maybe a Mormon, a Mormon, very Mormon context, because I have to say there was a big difference between where utah was in the 70s and where the rest of the country was i yeah. grew up in washington i didn't grow up in utah i grew up in washington state so that okay. was why i was able to to absorb that and it was all around me i was this little minority just a couple of mormons in my grade you know just the mm-hmm. mormons were this tiny group who sat together in the high school and everybody else was, you know, not Mormon. So um, that was a huge, huge part of it. And I, and I've always said that Utah culture tended to be 20 years behind. Mm -hmm. So I've often said that the eighties in Utah were like the sixties in America Mm -hmm. and the nineties in Utah were like the seventies in America. That's Mm -hmm. that's when I, when I came to Utah, I came to Utah in 1980. So that's another interesting part of my story is that, I formed as this feminist, this radical feminist in the seventies in Washington state. Then I moved to Utah in 1980 to go to BYU after serving an LDS mission. And it was such a shock. Mm -hmm. It it was so hard uh, encountering the sexism and the misogyny here on a whole new level in a way I'd never had before that it caused me to have to really, really fight and and I really suffered. I, I suffered incursions on my identity and sense of self and body from the misogyny in Utah, which mm-hmm. was just so deep. And 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 like the women, you know, in the radical left who were addressing the the sexism of the men in the new left, that's what I found among liberals. I went to the liberals. I went to the. The intellectuals in Utah to try to find my home, my place, my you know place where I would be valid. And what I discovered was the same thing that Kate Millett and those other women discovered: that the the liberal men, the left, were still incredibly sexist. Sexism mm-hmm. was still just so ingrained in it. And I spent most of my energy in the '80s and and half of the '90s dealing with the sexism in Utah culture and in liberal establishment, liberal Mormons in Utah, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. very very hard the liberal men I was working with were sexist and even misogynist and that I had to deal with that as well as trying to find my voice and trying to create um, feminist um, perspective and, and texts. So this is precisely why I had to address it. I had to do double duty just like Kate did. I had to try to address the, the sexism in the larger culture and and offer my voice. And I had to sort of fight and deal with the, the liberal men I was working with for the right to have that voice. And, and I had Mm -hmm. to deal with their sexist attitudes toward me and their, their way of, of still seeing me as the other and as a, Mm -hmm. a female body and a sexual body. And, um, and so this is why Kate Millett's book, sexual politics, Spends so much focus and energy on addressing the sexism, the sh- male chauvinism, the misogyny of the men in the new left, and why she critiques so vigorously and specifically D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller and Norman Mailer. Um, she's, she's not only addressing the sexism and, and the, the male centric view imposed onto women and their bodies, she's addressing the violent. Mm. sexual imagery and views that they have of women in their writings. And she's, she's quoting them and she's shocking people with, you know, saying, are you aware that this is what these men are actually, these so-called enlightened liberal men of the new left are actually saying in their work about women. Mm -hmm. So it was so important that she called that out and that she quoted them the very worst, most violent parts of their writing and and again i was so grateful for her doing that i mean it validated in me in a way that i needed not that i was encountering any violent sexual imagery at all or acts but i was encountering intellectual cultural violent violence you know in toward me as a woman and and my body and so mm-hmm just in language you know and attitudes and and statements and givens you know the the very given notion that that women's bodies were somehow gross and that menstruation was really ugly and horrible i mean i encountered that constantly mm-hmm. among liberal men or just the the paternalism and the condescension and you know patting us on the head and letting us participate but we all had to talk about the topics that men were interested in You know, I wanted to do feminism. I wanted to do women's topics and women's issues, and men didn't want to do that, you know? And I had to work on men's topics first to get credibility within Mormon culture and Mormon history and Mormon scholarship. And only after I'd spent years working on topics like the Mormon Trail and male leaders and pioneers, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. could I then, you know, establish enough credibility in Mormon studies and Mormon history to focus on women's history and, and feminism, because I, I couldn't jump right to it. I actually had to gain a certain amount of credibility among those men working on the same topics they were working on. So she really, Kate Millett really nails the problem that it in, that feminists were facing in liberalism and in the new left that, that while women were trying to, to find their voice and share their voice and unpack the sexist structures and roots of, of American culture, they were dealing with an assault on their bodies and their psyches at the same time. Mm. And, um, and it's interesting and predictable that of course, um, the men would respond (laughs) very negatively. Mm -hmm. So Norman Mailer, you know, writes a major attack on Kate Millett in her book. Um, And I think it was titled, he wrote this article, I think it was called The Prisoner of Sex, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he projects back onto her the very prison that she's trying to describe that women have found themselves in. And he's accusing her of creating that prison Mm -hmm. with her, with her work and with her rhetoric. And that's such a common backlash mm-hmm. that happens. Women try to articulate a problem. Feminists articulate a double bind and then they're accused of creating the very thing that they're articulating.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Maxine, I have to say that was so helpful that, um, that summary and all of that context and just kind of laying out Kind of the lay of the land at the that at that time is so helpful as we um, approach this book because as I said I I mean I opened it and um, I was just shocked immediately by like whoa I have never read anything like this before and I because I didn't have context about what she was doing I just found it um, quite. I mean off putting honestly and like scandalizing like what are you doing <laughs> like I didn't understand, and then, as I got further in, I was like, oh now, now I understand what she's doing, but um, that was really, really useful, so I so appreciate you setting the the stage for millet's work and um I'm really looking forward to um, quoting some passages from her book and, and hearing what you think of them, and we'll tackle that on our next episode. So listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet to do some reading on Kate Millett, I do recommend that article in The New Yorker by Rebecca Mead. It's called Sexual Politics And the Feminist Work That Remains Undone. I really recommend to listeners that you take a look at um, that article. And if you're interested in reading Kate Millett's book, it it is a foundational text for radical feminism. So um, take a look and then join us for more on our next episode, part two of Sexual Politics, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.